Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning, everyone. Uh, This is the interview of the day if you care about the future of Europe. The Peterson Institute has Adam Posen driving the ship off of Fred Bergson's decades of work and Jake Kierkegaard. But David Gura, Jerome Zettelmeyer out of MIT, is their definitive voice on Germany. And it's great to have him with us here from our Bloomberg 991 studios uh, in Washington, D.C., to talk about this election yesterday. Angela Merkel winning a fourth term uh, as German chancellor, however, the uh, coalition building begins. There's talk of a Jamaica coalition. We'll dig into what that means here in just a moment. Chairman, let me start with the, the AFD, this Alliance for Germany, and, and maybe you can help those of us who uh, don't follow German politics closely regularly understand what the AFD uh, is and the significance here of that party getting a few seats uh, in the parliament. Yes. Uh, thank you so much, David. It's it's nice to be with you. So, so the AFD won about 13% of the vote uh, yesterday, which uh, was a bigger win for them uh, than expected. They are a right-wing populist party uh, that campaigns mostly on uh, two issues, uh, anti-immigration uh, and uh, anti-euro. So they, they actually started out as a pure anti-euro party and then uh, transformed themselves into a more generic uh, right-wing party, well to the right of Mrs. Merkel's uh, Christian Democrats that used to be the most right-wing party in Germany for most of the post-war period. Mm. Now, they are not anti-EU, so this is not a, a UKIP uh, party. It's not the Front National in that sense. They're also uh, pretty much a pro-market. But they will make it more difficult for Mrs. Merkel to find compromises on reforming the euro area. Dr. Settlemeyer, how much in the end was this election about uh, the economy? I think of how we talk about immigration in this country. Um, there's a link, whether there or not, between, uh, w- between immigration and the economy when we, when we talk about uh, the issue of immigration. Was this, was this an election that centered on economic issues? No, uh, not really. I mean, on on economic issues, the governing coalition has done very well. Uh, It was, uh, you know, Germany was one of the first countries to recover from the a great financial crisis. It wasn't really affected by the by the euro crisis, and uh, unemployment is uh, at an all-time low. Uh, what uh, was a big deal uh, in this election is, in some sense, the lagged effect of the one million or so refugees that uh, entered Germany in in 2015 and and early 2016, and the resulting sense of loss of security. Uh, the difficulties uh, in integrating these refugees. So that was uh, an important uh, an important theme, and that's part of the reason why the AFD, the right-wing populist party, did so well. Help me understand uh, how coalition building might work here in Germany going forward. I mentioned the, the Jamaica coalition, named that because of the, the, the color scheme of each of the parties that might, uh, might comprise it. What's likely to happen here, and how quickly does this need to happen to, to ensure a continuity, uh, among other things? Yes. So the real significance of uh, yesterday's election result is that the Social Democrats, the second biggest party uh, that have so far governed with Mrs. Merkel, took themselves out of the running for a continuation of their coalition with Mrs. Merkel. Uh, and that would have meant basically uh, politics as usual. You know, these parties are not terribly far apart on, on most uh, economic issues. So that would have 
uh, provided uh, a sense of stability. Now, they did very, very poorly, and the sense among them is that they did poorly because um, they were associated with this uh, government. So they decided that they will spend the next four years in opposition. This may not be the last word, but so far that's what they announced. And so that gives Ms. Merkel only one option, which is to form a coalition with the right-of-center liberal party. So liberal means something different from what it means in the U.S. Mm. Uh, so this is more of a libertarian a party, pro-market. And the Green Party, which is an, an environmental uh, party, but uh, also with U.S.-type liberal ideas. And they are definitely uh, left uh, of Mrs. Merkel. So she's going to have a tough job um, negotiating a common government platform with these two parties that are, that are quite, uh, quite different. And uh, as far as uh, euro area policies are going to be, the Free Democrats, the Liberal Party, are quite far to the right from, from Mrs. Merkel. So they have taken a very tough line on, for example, issues like debt relief, yeah. on issues like you know, a common fiscal uh, budget for the euro area. They reject these sorts of things. Yeah. And these are precisely the things that Mrs. Merkel needs to talk about with President Macron of yeah. France. German, thank you so much. Really look forward to your writing for the Peterson Institute here in the coming days on Germany. German Zettelmeyer with the Peterson Institute. Uh, David, we just got a hate note from Boston. Tom, I don't care about the New York Giants. <laughs> I'm not going to touch this. <laughs> Boston 106.1 FM, I'm sorry. This is Bloomberg. It has been a joy over the last number of weeks to speak to John Vale of Nico with his direct knowledge of Japan, which for all of us, about the farthest west I've gone deep into Japan was the Grand Hyatt Hotel, where you sit there and you have a cigar at the end of the bar like one B. Murray did in Lost in Translation. <laughs> Full disclosure, folks, the band at the Grand Hyatt in Tokyo is much better than in the movie Lost in Translation. I, I, if you can find the place, it's a very hard It's very hard to, to find. find. You've got to go like some secret door up 50 yeah. stories. Takeoka Toyama, on the west coast of Toyama Prefecture in Japan. It's like opposite of Tokyo, way over on the west coast, I believe. How does Mr. Abe play in the hinterlands? He's pretty popular. I guess there are a little bit more traditional values over there than they are in the city. So uh, there was a time when uh, the mayor of Tokyo was a Communist Party uh, person. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the urban area can be quite much more liberal uh, than the, the outlying areas. How much of, of an appetite is there uh, in Japan for him to continue serving uh, as, as prime minister? He's been uh, in place two times now, and, and we're looking at uh, him getting well into his 70s if he's, if he's to continue. Uh, is there any unease with that, somebody serving a tenure as long as, as the one he's looking at? I don't think anybody's too worried, except for maybe his rivals within the Democratic Party, about his tenure. Um, 
other than the fact that maybe some people thought he was getting a bit haughty and a little bit um, mm, careless about uh, how much power he was wielding. Um, there were some uh, minor scandals in the past uh, that people thought he glossed over, and I think rightfully so because they were quite minor. But for the most part, people are voting on the issues. And they're voting on him, especially for the economy and for their view on the military. Help, help with it when the economy and the mathematics here. Real GDP is pretty sporting, but the deflation is there. So nominal GDP is not all that good. Which affects the voters? Do they wake up in the morning and go, oh, real GDP, outstanding? Or do they look at a lethargic nominal Top-line GDP is more important. What do the people think? I think they look at real GDP and— Really? Yes, yeah. I think they do because um, they know that the population is shrinking and that uh, Japan's not a you know, high-growth area. And to say that the Japanese people really dislike uh, deflation is not really too accurate, to be honest. Okay. Um, and it's more like noflation is what I've called it for the last couple of decades. It's not really— Prices shrinking, it's the prices going flat. And there's no, and right now there's basically no inflation in Japan. And Japanese people don't actually mind that. I guess they're used to it, but they really don't like it when prices rise. I remember one time when uh, they raised the taxi fares in Japan, there was almost a strike by mm. all the, the public. They, they, it was very easy to get taxis after that. And they only raised it a little bit. So the Japanese are actually against inflation in many ways, surprisingly. Talk about the election here that, that's being called in just a moment. But first, let me ask you about this economic package. This was something that you expected would happen. We'd see the VAT tax raised. Uh, what does this prime minister, what, what's he able to do here when he looks at his demographic challenges through training and through uh, education? How wisely spent will this money be, do you think? Well, I hope he doesn't spend it all because, I mean, they have to make some progress. I mean, the people who are pushing this is the Ministry of Finance. Mm. Originally, you know, some time back, they wanted the VAT to be the consumption tax to be 20% in the year 2020 for the Olympics. But they're barely going to get it to 10. Uh, and so this will probably happen actually in October of 2019. They have to announce it well in advance so that uh, companies can prepare their their software systems and whatnot for it. But it, I do hope that he spends uh, maybe only the minority of it, uh, and it will be spent on increasing productivity. He gave a very good speech at the New York Stock Exchange uh, recently and outlined his uh, uses for the uh, increase in, in tax. And uh, it's mostly for the elderly, and it's mostly for education and for um, uh, improving the productivity of the country. Especially education of older people, re-educating them. That's a kind of a bad word from the Red Guard <laughs> days. Yeah. But basically to give them additional training so are, that they can be useful. Are foreign affairs important? I mean, there's yes. terrific foreign affairs right now. Yes, that's helping him a lot because he's always been a bit of a hawk on uh, uh, North Korea and to a lesser extent on China. And he's basically been proven right in saying that this is something that we really should be worried about. He's talking um, now about maybe not amending the Constitution, which is very, very troublesome in, in terms of taking away the, uh, the, the defense-only clause of the Constitution and maybe just reinterpreting it or adding another uh, a phrase to the Constitution. 
so hopefully that will be not too traumatic. Walk us through his, his calculus here in calling for this uh, this election. We mentioned raising taxes going against something I think he said he, he, he wouldn't do. And he also noted this morning in his press conference that uh, the situation in North Korea, the foreign affairs that Tom just mentioned, is, is mm. also necessitating this uh, as well. Uh, we've seen a, a recent snap election in the UK not go according to, to plan. How confident uh, is this prime minister, is Shinzo Abe, in, in how this is going to play out, do you think? Well, his approval ratings have risen recently on the back of North Korea and the economy being strong. And so he's pretty confident. I think he should be um, that it will be uh, successful. I mean, to get, you know, as many as he has currently will not be too easy. Um, and I hope that uh, the uh, he's not too disappointed mm. that he did this. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it, I, I can't imagine it be anything like May because the economy is strong and uh, things are really going his way. Right. But the timing is related to the VAT hike. And one final question. I, I looked at a, a great distribution chart in the FT today of the parliamentary structure of Germany where there's two big parties. FDP has gotten smaller and there's three or four other parties, including the alt-right around it. That's not Japan. Japan is still LDP and the other guys, and the other guys don't have their act together. Is that the right analysis? It is. Uh, for <clears> a while there, the other guys had their act together, but they yeah. kind of blew it. And they're basically a non-functioning sort of coalition of right. various factions. They're not, they're not effective right now. We spoke a couple of, of, of times back about um, a, a local election in Japan, and uh, Yuriko Koike won the, the, the local election in Tokyo. And, and at the time, we were wondering sort of what the import of that might be. She now declaring a new party or a new coalition, a party of hope, I gather it's going to be called. How closely should we be watching her, and, and what does that signal to you about Japanese politics going forward? I hadn't thought of that till now, but it, it could be related to the fact that she's not ready to run any sort of national election. Uh, so uh, hurrying up the election now might be uh, a factor in terms of preventing her from uh, getting prepared for it. Very interesting. John Vale, thank you. Uh, thank you much. so Great much. With really you. appreciate it this morning. Very, very valuable. I, I really can't say enough about getting that perspective on some of these global events, synthesizing it into what we're doing here, which, which David Gura is to a huge extent central bank speakers this week. And after the press conference of Chair Yellen, I really wonder what will be the concision and insight within those speeches or is it going to be, you know, is the theme this week going to be boilerplate? Will yeah. They just mail it in. I, I'm not critical if they mail it in, but I, I don't know if there's a plan. Yeah. In, in a few minutes, we're going to check in with Michael McKee, who's out in Cleveland, uh, Ohio, our uh, international economics and policy correspondent there for the NABE. Indians. I just, come on. I checked. There are no games scheduled whilst uh, while oh, Congress is underway. I'm <laughs> just joking. I but, will uh, have you know, so, yeah. full disclosure, folks, some of the sausage making here at Bloomberg Surveillance. Do you know that just by chance, once, and McKee and I were in Washington just by chance. It happened to be the there. The Pittsburgh Penguins were there. And just by chance, we had seats 10 rows up wow. watching Ovechkin do it on the power play. Just by chance. I mean, it's I so close to the Bureau. It's yeah, Then the Verizon Center. Con- it was convenient <laughs> to say. Just by chance, Washington Capitals, Pittsburgh Penguins, just by chance with Michael McKee. And now, uh, folks, from Berlin, and he is the greatest American watcher of Berlin, is John C. Kornblum, ambassador of the United States to Germany. A long ago and far away ambassador, 
The article, Reagan's Brandenburg Concerto. Was there a concerto with this election as we see the right, the far right, join the Bundestag? Well, uh, I suppose to use your analogy, what we're probably talking about here is uh, very uh, deconstructed modern music. Uh, it, it was, there is a, a melody in there somewhere, mm-hmm. but it's going to be a while to figure out exactly I, what I, it is. I, I, I like that. And to me, the key idea is the idea of the permanence of this to the right thrust. How permanent does it, pers- does it seem to you? I think what is permanent is, is uh, not only in Germany, but in all of Europe, Western Europe at least, but also in Poland and, of course, in the United States. What is permanent is that the structures, the expectations, and the, the mood of voters in all of these countries is changing very dramatically. And it's changing for a whole lot of reasons, which we can go into. But I think, in other words, it's never going to be the same again. It's never going to be the same again. How is this coalition building process going to be different than it has been in the past? In the past? Well, it's going to be different again because it's more complicated. Uh, I was trying to think back over time. I don't think that there's ever been, I'm quite sure I'm right about this, there's never been a coalition government in Germany which has had more than two parties in it. And usually they've been parties which were ideologically suited to each other. There was one exception with the SPD and the FDP, but otherwise they've been close to each other. This time it's going to be, unless something major changes, there's going to be a coalition of three parties, and of three parties, each of whom is ideologically different than the other two. In other words, the, the CDU and the FDP don't really see eye to eye. The FDP and the Greens don't see eye to eye, and the Greens and the CDU don't see, see eye to eye. How do you assess the integrity of a, of a coalition? If, if no one is seeing eye to eye, uh, how optimistic can one be that a coalition, however it's formed, however it coalesces, is going to be able to do anything or, or maintain the status quo or, or, or continue to work on economic and social issues, for instance? Well, um, politicians like to be in office. So they will reach an agreement, and then the question is uh, whether the leaders of the parties are skillful enough to carry it out. In the government, which is just leaving office now in Germany, there were two parties, the CDU and the SPD, who were, you know, they're one's conservative, one's social democratic, but they really saw eye to eye on a whole lot of stuff. They couldn't get very much done, <clears throat> not because they, they had 80% of the votes in the parliament, but because they didn't know what to do. And so uh, you can almost argue the opposite, that with a party, a coalition with two new parties in it, you might find some ideas for a change. How do you think uh, Wolfgang Schäuble was watching the election results come in yesterday? What do you think he was thinking, and, and, and what are you, what's your sense of, of what this means for his tenure? Um, I think it means for his tenure that it will just continue. Maybe not. Maybe the FDP will demand the finance ministry. I'm just not sure about mm. that. But I think that what he was probably thinking privately was this just shows how important his goals are and how he's got to be determined to stick around to make sure that they're realized. There were some rumors before the election that if this outcome happened, he might end up being foreign minister, which would be, I think, a good thing for Germany, actually. But um, I think that whatever happens, he's going to be there in some major role. I remember the generational change ambassador from Conrad Adenauer over to a young, sprightly JFK like Willy Brandt. Is there, right. a, is there a generational shift this time around, or is no. Merkel a representative of the past? 
Well, she's a representative of the past, but there is no generational change. The, the leaders of the two other parties that are with, are with her are both under 50. Uh, and, um, and they're both very modern, also very attractive people. They're both uh, good, good people. Uh, and so in a way, that may be a generational change. But I personally think the generational change is one more election cycle away. Uh, the, 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 the people, if I may put it this way, of my generation are just hanging on too long. We should get out of the way. But uh, we're not for various reasons, uh, partially because there aren't a whole lot of people uh, 10 years younger who want to be in these jobs, mm. I think. But five years from now, uh, Germany is going to go through a major generational change. There will be nobody left who remembers the Cold War. Let, I mean, World War II is What already, do you predict on that? Will the West and East Germany, will they further divide with that lack of institutional memory? They may, but it's not too important because East Germany is, right. is, a, is a very dependent part of Germany, so it doesn't matter. I think the more important thing is going to be, does this next generation of Germans jump totally into, shall we say, the digital world, which I hope they right. will? Uh, or does it become more national-oriented? Uh, a sensitive question to end, Ambassador, <clears throat> if I could. I will say this with delicacy and respect to all of Germany. The alt-right, the far-right that enters today, everybody makes an uproar about the Bundestag in 1945. Do they carry that institutional memory? Do they link who they are back to these difficult ghosts of a long time ago? Well, they are, like everybody else, a mixture of people. And in fact, one of the imponderables of this new situation is going to be how how much uh, cohesion the uh, AFD has. They are actually a combination of about five or six different groupings. There is one grouping which you could almost call unreconstructed uh, uh, admirers of the past, including... Yeah. The Third Reich. There's a, there's one person there, for example, who says it's now time for us to remember the heroism of German soldiers who fought in World wow. War II. Wow. Well, they were heroes, and they were young men who were killed for nothing. But the fact is, the purpose well, of this army was to conquer others yeah. and to destroy others, so you can't really honor them. Well, a, you see how difficult it is. Yes. Ambassador, thank you so much. We're honored you're with us today. We'll have to get Ambassador Kornblum on again soon with those important uh, comments and perspective from New York. Stay with us. This is Bloomberg. The Euro migrates south. We started at 119, 30, 40, 119, and we've migrated down. And I guess I can say German election. But now, David, it is not German election. It's Draghi elects to speak. Yes, I'm and Mario Draghi speaking now. Just looking at some of these headlines. It's crossing. the beginning of our central bank speaking derby today. There I guess. You go. He says the euro area recovery has accelerated and broadened. It's supported by pass through of uh, stimulus. Recovery must still translate into stronger inflation. Uh, and he says, quote, a very substantial degree of accommodation uh, is needed. Again, Mario Draghi speaking here, just looking at some of these headlines crossing from his prepared yeah. remarks. We'll continue to follow those here uh, on the show. 11869 uh, on euro. Ascanston, London. Advising the Princess Royale in London on hydrocarbons is Phil Verliger, of course, P.K. Verliger, president, and has been just wonderful at speaking to us about the dynamics and the veracity of our guesstimates on oil. Phil, wonderful to speak to you. 
from our studios in London. Do you know what oil demand is right now? No, and nobody does. <laughs> it's the, you know, the macroeconomists, the Bureau of Economics does a wonderful job on GDP, and they still, there's a good deal of uncertainty. In the case of oil, we really don't know what consumption is. We kind of know what production is. We may know what stock change is, and we back into consumption. But what we do know is, and what you just said from what Mario Draghi said, is Europe is picking up. The economy in Europe is moving ahead. If you look at the nowcasts for the Europe, nowcasts for the U.S., things are moving ahead. Harvey, yes, is going to give a, uh, a pause or a slight slowdown for a quarter. But the global economy is finally moving ahead, and it's, maybe it's breaking out of this 2% growth. Uh, and I, you know, I read all these economists and look. And if that's the case, oil is going to pick up. We know oil is going to get consumed because there is a link. And what we, what we also know is that oil growth is about two percentage points lower, at least historically, uh, than economic growth. So, you know, we're going to get a percentage or so. And that really wasn't factored in. And that's adding to, to prices. And that's pushing Brent up. In addition, we have the uh, the hurricanes really distorted and made impossible for a while exports of U.S. crude oil. So that's widening the WTI Brent spread. So the global oil situation has gotten better. We're talking to you from, from London today, and, and I wonder how the, the U.S. oil picture looks from, from across the Atlantic. What are folks telling you about their observations of, of, of the U.S. oil economy? Well, I arrived yesterday, and so I'm still suffering from jet lag. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> so I'm sorry. But what you hear is, you know, I, when I talk to people in, in Europe and I've been talking to them, they, aren't, they don't ask about the oil situation. I, we kind of have a picture. And the U.S. demand growth has not been as strong as people think it is. But, I mean, they're more puzzled about the economic situation in the United States and uh, frankly, the political situation. It's so it, it's you're not, you know, I haven't heard very much. Mm -hmm. The question focus really is here. And what happened here and what's happened here is that the United States have become a major exporter of oil to South America. Mexico gets half its gas, half its oil products from the United States. The hurricanes took that out. And so what happened is. Europe started sending products to South America, to Mexico and to other South American countries. Asia is sending it. California is sending it. It's a global market, and the, the situation that's changed, uh, and I've been following this a long time, is the United States is now a very large exporter of products, principally yeah. to South America. Phil, the minute we've got left with you, and I'm sorry it's too short today, is are we up to our eyeballs in oil? You, have, you were incredibly bright about peak oil. And what, you know, in hindsight, was mm -hmm. a folly. Are we still up to our eyeballs in hydrocarbons? We're up to our eyeballs in hydrocarbons and tanks. And we're starting to work them off. Uh, the reserve, you, there's plenty of oil out there. And we're entering in, Tom, to the twilight of the oil era. I mean, electric cars are coming. Uh, and they're coming much faster. The price of electric cars is falling. And so it's going to be like... Electric cars are going to take off the way cell phones took off. I mean, in, uh, at the turn of the century, if you talk to a telephone company, they'd say, gee, we're going to wire, we're going to have more landlines. Well, landlines are down by about 40%. Everybody's on cell phones now. 
Yeah. And the same thing's going to happen in automobiles. It's it, yeah. The oil industry is in denial, but that's what's going to happen. Okay. Too short. Phil Verliger, thank you so much. P.K. Verliger uh, in London. I can't convey enough over the years. Uh, David Gurr, the value he has brought us, the perspective, right and wrong. And, of course, with a drop in oil price, right, 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 uh, from Phil Verliger. Are, are you going to get an electric car, David? Uh, I have a hybrid. I'm halfway there. You're, you have a hybrid. Michael Barr, I mean, John Tucker is a Hummer. And, you know, I, I just rent the Bentley and say, thank you. What do you, what do you drive? Prius C. Okay. There we go. I, I just what don't. Do get I, you on board, I'm Tom. not yet to electric cars. David Gura and Tom Keane in New York. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. Over these last few months, we've seen the People's Bank of China, the PBOC, tightening controls of outflows in that country. And somebody who's been watching that closely is Ishwar Prasad. He's the Talani Senior Professor of Trade Policy at Cornell University, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, author, of course, of Gaining Currency, the Rise of the Renminbi. He joins us now on our phone lines. Ishwar, great to speak with you this morning. Let me ask you just how well the PBOC is doing here uh, controlling the Renminbi at this point. Well, the PBOC is certainly in a good spot right now, David, because um, the fact that the dollar is depreciating relative to the other major currencies, at at least until a few days ago, uh, implied that the PBOC was able to let the uh, renminbi actually appreciate a little bit against the dollar while not losing competitiveness against other major export markets of China, like Europe, Japan, and so forth. Um, so it's taken a lot of pressure off the PBOC, which until recently had been battling capital outflows and a lot of depreciation pressures on the renminbi. Um, they had put in place what they called a counter-cyclical adjustment factor, which is basically a fudge factor in the exchange rate uh-huh. to try to prevent what they saw as depreciation pressures. So now all of that is off and they can manage it a lot more effectively. Do investors, do economists have a good sense of what the PBOC's policy is at this point? You talk about that that fudge factor. Uh, three words to describe that that fudge factor there. Is the PBOC becoming a clearer communicator of policy? They tried. Um, what they said to markets some time ago, uh, a few months ago, in fact, was that they were going to manage the currency's value against a basket of currencies rather than just the U.S. dollar. Markets didn't quite believe them. Markets have been trying to test them. Um, and the PBOC has uh, basically responded by saying that they are, in fact, doing that. Um, but that since markets don't always get it right, they need to have this counter-cyclical adjustment factor. So it's not been um, a paragon of good communication, the PBOC, that is. Yeah. Um, and I think they could accomplish a lot more if they simply did what they uh, say they are doing. And if they articulated that policy clearly and showed that they meant it. I, I mean, I guess the question is, and I guess it goes to any good old international economics textbook uh, professor, and I think of Obsfeld Rogoff, what's the trilemma for China if they have such an artificial construct of government, economics, and society? Do they have a traditional international economic trilemma? So they're in a curious part of the trilemma, Tom. Um, what they've tried to do is be somewhere in the middle. So um, muddling through by having a somewhat flexible yeah. exchange rate and increasing the open capital account and some independence of monetary policy. But as they're learning, particularly during times of stress in financial markets, you can't have it all. And that's driven them into a corner many times. 
I, I think muddling through. That's a CFA institute word, David. You have to <laughs> muddling through really speaks volumes. Well, let's uh, hand it to them. They have actually muddled through reasonably competently. So if you had to give a price for muddling through, the Chinese would certainly get it because it's something they've done with a reasonable degree of effectiveness, again, except in periods yeah. of stress when things start coming apart. Ishwar, give us a preview, if you would, of, of, of what we can expect here when the, the People's Congress gets underway in a few weeks' time. What are you going to be watching? What are you going to be listening to uh, as, that, as that Congress gets underway? The betting, by and large, David, seems to be that uh, President Xi Jinping will end up consolidating his powers. Um, now, whether he does this uh, somewhat uh, overtly by making sure that the main policy-making body in China, the Standing Committee of the Politburo, is stacked with his people, um, or if he um, provides a little more balance, will be interesting to see. But what comes after the uh, People's Congress, I think, is going to be far more interesting because under any scenario, uh, presidency will consolidate his power. And then the question is, will he reveal his true stripes? And will those stripes mean that he is an economic reformer who is now going to use his added power to push through major economic reforms? Or will he retreat to a more um, government-led economic structure? And the betting, at least on my part, is on the latter. I I mean, to get away from the linear algebra of uh, Absfeld Rogoff, what is the, not thuggery, but the power dynamic between Beijing and the larger metropolitan areas? It's a very complicated dynamic at uh, any time because the provincial... Um, governors do tend to be quite powerful. But what Xi Jinping has done quite effectively during the past few years is bring some of the more recalcitrant governors under his uh, domain. He's eliminated a few of them through his anti-corruption drive, and he's made it very clear that uh, dissension uh, from Beijing, especially open dissension, will not be tolerated. Mm. Um, but there is a limit to how aggressively he can push on that because the local bosses do have their own power bases. Right. But he is he is getting rid of the opposition quite well. I can't say goodbye to you because in our agreement, Mr. Guru says goodbye to everyone yeah. from Cornell. <laughs> Ishwar Prasad. Always great to speak with Ishwar Prasad. Joining us today from Ithaca, I believe. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.